contemporary spiritualities need room and time to emerge. And as they do emerge, we'll see more sophisticated kinds of social engagements that emerge with them, uh, ways of imagining changing the world, and that don't simply, that aren't simply reactions, that come from a, a place of reflection that, that does have real integrity. signing up for a a fun conversation today meaningful uh, as well for me the participant today is has been a friend for years we did our graduate work together so we've been kicking around these ideas for uh, for a long time now he's definitely helped me out when I've been in a pinch many times when I uh, I feel like I'm bumping up against things that I can't really understand and uh, (laughs) and I call Sean so uh, he actually answers, which is always uh, appreciated. Uh, so today's participant, Sean Fitzpatrick, I chose him for this second slot because of his interest in the imagination. So not only our relationship, but he explores a subject that I've I've found to be pretty dense. My first exposure to a real academic orientation to the imagination was through Henri Corbin. And Sean is a fantastic intermediary between us and uh, and that material. So I want to read through his bio, but first I want to correct a mistake from the first episode. The The music you're hearing is from Modern, Modern Nations, and their website is modernnationsmusic.com. Please check that out to hear more of their releases as they come out. For more information on this podcast and any participant that you hear, you can find out more at thesacredspeaks.com. So I'll get to his bio. Sean Fitzpatrick holds master's degrees in religious studies from Rice University and clinical psychology from the University of Houston Clear Lake and received his doctorate in psychology through Saybrook University's program in Jungian studies. Sean is a psychotherapist in private practice and has been employed at the Jung Center since 1997 and he is currently the executive director of the Jung Center in Houston. He's been an instructor at the Jung Center since 2001, and he lectures locally and nationally on a range of contemporary social and psychological issues. It's, um, I'm just grateful. I'm grateful for Sean. I'm, I'm grateful for the years of uh, bouncing back and forth on, on these ideas and uh, that continuing on and on. So I'll leave it there for today and bring you Sean. So this is, of course, very exciting for me, considering our history. Yeah. Um, it's really nice. We're sitting today in, uh, in Sean's office at the, the Young Center, um, a place that's been near and dear to my heart. 
Um, but having this conversation with you is, is pretty special to me. So I'm, I'm really happy that you arranged the time. Thank you. It's just such a, such a pleasure. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I, I'm, I feel like I'm cheating cause I know you will. Uh, <laughs> and, and that's what makes this great. It really does. This makes it so great. Um, to be exploring these, um, sometimes really difficult to comprehend or even to hold on to, um, ideas and concepts and realities. Um, but I, I think you've, you've got such a, uh, a wonderful way of, um, uh, of, of articulating yourself, especially with, uh, with this subject matter. So I of course want to go into your history, but, um, something that struck me in, in your writing, um, in particular, this quote, we imagine imagination into being, and I, w- I want to know the, the background even behind that one quote. So how did you come to even understand that and write that? There's an assumption there, which is that I do understand, <laughs> that I do understand it as you, as you read it. I thought, wow, that has, that has, um, that sounds like it has a lot more depth than I, than I, than I think. I had any sense of um, the, so the, in the simplest sense, I guess, you know, any concept uh, that we use to describe our experience is uh, constructed. You know, it has a history. It has uh, a life in, um, you know, in, in culture, we've inherited it. And I, I am, I love looking at the etymology of words and a lot of people who are in, in the depth psychological world like looking at etymology because often there are these really potent and fascinating images that are at the heart of uh, the words that we use. For, for the imagination, I think what, it was important for me to say it that time as I was writing that which is part of the book manuscript that I'm working on uh, is and, and part of it was for my dissertation was just that we the act of talking about the imagination is imagination itself right you know we're we're creating a space in which we live and experience ourselves so when we I start talking about the imagination, for instance, when I start talking about it clinically, uh, I, the first analyst that I worked with personally would use this word fantasy a lot. He would say, um, well, I'm having this fantasy that you, you know, I don't know, you, you know, you spend a lot of time by yourself, you know, um, and when he meant was, I think, literally that he was having an experience in his imagination, you mm-hmm. know, or he would use the word fantasy to talk about something that might happen for me in the future, or but it was he was literally just saying, okay, right now, this is an experience I'm having, and it probably has what we would think to have, like a visual quality to it, right? Um, but it's, it's about um, a, an alternate reality that is um, also present in this moment. And I found myself, when I as a, started seeing clients, I found myself saying, okay, fairly early in, this, in, like, in working with people, I'd find myself saying, okay, I use this word fantasy in a way I feel like I need to explain to you. <laughs> because I say it all the time now, too. Like I said, right. okay, so I'm having this fantasy about 
you know, your relationship with this person over time, you know, or I'm having this, you know, fantasy about the future for you, or I'm having, you know, or honestly just having an, an experience right now of you as a human being that is my experience and relates in complicated uh, ways and often, I think, unconscious ways to the person who's sitting across from me. So when somebody's describing, for instance, their childhood home and, you know, or, you know, I, or the home they live in now, well, I create that home in my imagination, you know, and I have my own, I have my own fantasy that is populated by these figures that are being described in the conversation between the two of us. And I find it useful to maintain, just to maintain an awareness of the, that those things are related, but separate and different. And um, to be constantly using that as a point of reference back and forth between myself and the client. So, but when I start to talk about it, but by saying, this is, uh, you know, this is what fantasy means to me. It's an experience of the imagination. I'm already setting up for the client the idea that they have experiences too that we would call inner, for lack of a better word, like they have inner experiences. And they can start taking a look at them as well, paying attention to them. Um, and it's using that word imagination mm -hmm. that in some ways makes it possible for them to do that. Like they've never... Um, understood their experience in that way um, and it can be very helpful and liberating so uh, again I'm tons of questions because I find myself being uh, I don't know as you're talking about that I, I think my, my my fantasy is how validating that feels for somebody then to begin to have a degree of flexibility with that kind of interior experience rather than having to just immediately live it out yeah yes yeah that's a great way of talking about it well and you gave a you gave a really good story about that at one point and before before we go into this let's um let's let's kind of frame uh you know our conversation and the audience of course um yeah. you come from a background uh, where you did um a master's in religious studies mm -hmm. is that correct yeah tell me a bit about that so um I, when I left uh, my undergraduate degree, which was in psychology, I knew that I had, I still had, I had questions that were religious. Uh, and they were specifically, I was raised Catholic, um, and, and I wasn't, you know, in my, in my early 20s, I wasn't an observant Catholic. I had had a near- I mean, I did a close call with the priesthood, you know, um, and uh, which is which is kind of another story. But the when I left when I left the University of Houston, I knew that I wanted to come to terms with some questions about theodicy, right, which is divine justice, notion of divine justice, and. Uh, and I'd been bitten by this, you know, Jungian uh, idea or Jungian perspective on religious experience, understanding it as having psychological meaning and value and depth that we don't necessarily have to make statements about the metaphysical truth 
of a particular religious tradition or a particular myth or story to understand that it has profound psychological meaning. And so I was kind of casting about looking for ways to to do that. I knew that I wanted to do it in a formal context. Like I mm-hmm. wanted to be able to ask it in a fairly, the questions in a fairly rigorous way. And so I applied to a couple of the- theology programs and got into them. And, uh, and I applied to Rice because I had a mentor, uh, Hugh Sanborn, who was teaching psychology of religion at the time at Rice, and he said, you should think about this program. We have this new guy, Bill Parsons, who just arrived, and and uh, uh, and so I applied, and it was, actually, there's an interesting story I can tell about this, so I went through the application process. For the other schools that I applied to, it was just a paper application. You send it off, they say yay, nay, and you know, you know, and you're done, but for Rice, there was a two-day interview process, and it was totally grueling and humbling and all of the candidates who were there with me knew so much more than I did were so brilliant and the uh, anyway it was an initiation it really was kind of an initiation and afterwards I left and I thought there is no way they're going to accept me into this program which was academic religious studies as opposed to theology, which is the other schools where you're within a tradition, within a Christian. One was a Jesuit school and the other was a Methodist school. And But for religious studies, this is an academic, you're sort of um, looking at religion from a critical perspective. And I just thought, there's no way they're going to accept me into this. And I, I want it more than I've wanted pretty much anything in my life to be in this. I know how much it would transform me. Mm-hmm. And I had this, afterwards I had this dream, and um, I had this dream that Anne Klein, who's a Buddhist, um, uh, famous Buddhist scholar, who was the chair of the department at the time, uh, that Anne, in this dream, uh, looked at me and she said, you don't need to worry about getting into this program. You need to worry about what's going to happen to you after you're after you're here wow. yeah and um i don't know if i've i mean i've known ann for 20 some odd years i'm not exactly sure that i told her i've told her that i've never known that story. i told her that How story that is. yeah 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 and uh, and that was my experience i mean i uh, it was really you know the experience in an academic religious studies program really just tore me down intellectually and rebuilt me in uh, just, uh, just utterly life-changing ways. I mean, and I was in the I was in the, uh, the philosophy of religion seminar. I'd never taken a philosophy class. I think I took a logic class once. And in college, I got like a B minus in in logic. And so I was sitting in these graduate seminars with Rice undergrads, and the graduate students uh, being taught by Edith Wishagrod. And Edith was for a time she was the president of the American Academy of Religion. She's an extraordinarily well-known philosopher of religion. She was a student and a scholar of Emmanuel Levinas, who's become important to me in, the, in my dissertation writing process. I didn't know who he was at the time. But she was, in, she was uh, utterly brilliant human being. I used to say she would jet off, like she'd, we'd have her seminar, and then she'd get on a plane and she'd go to Paris to debate Derrida and, the, you know, these... And then she'd come, she'd come back. And I was... And she was so kind 
to me, and it was so evident that uh, I was, I mean, they were Rice undergrads in there, and they knew so much more than, than I did. And she was so kind and thoughtful and supportive, and she, came, she met me where I was and, uh, and helped me along. And that was my experience the whole way through at Rice. Uh, well, that's so great. I, I, secretly, before the I was driving over to your office, and I was thinking, this is so great. I, you know, despite knowing you as well as I do, and as long as I have, I'll get to know you in a different way by having this conversation. So that was it's stories like that that I've never um, that I've never heard. So for for people who, um, you know, speaking of imagination, what is Jungian? What what is that? What does that mean? Oh, Jungian, yeah. yeah. So. Um, God, I don't know. Famously, <laughs> uh, really famously, uh, it, you know, so we're talking about C.G. Young, who is the uh, one of the major figures in the origins of psychoanalysis and, and in talk therapy, you know, in, in psychotherapy in the 20th century, and remains an, a fascinating signifier for people who are interested in a psychological understanding of spirituality, and in, in a variety of other places too. In any case, Jung is, was a Swiss uh, aristocrat. Um, he was actually raised in poverty, uh, had a very poor childhood, but he married rich, and uh, and that gave him a tremendous amount of freedom. And he was a brilliant, brilliant human being. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to veer off from my stump speech about Jung for a minute. I think probably that, <laughs> that territory will get covered elsewhere in your, in your podcast. He was a complex man and, and, and um, morally and ethically complex figure. But he, uh, he said fairly famously later in his life, he said, thank God I am Jung and not a Jungian, mm. you know. And Jungian psychology, um, there were several attempts over the course of its d development, which was running kind of parallel to the development of psychoanalysis, Freud's, you know, Freud's psychoanalysis. And there were attempts to rename it, you know, to, it was complex psychology for a while. And it's known formally as analytical psychology, but familiarly, people call it Jungian psychology. So we identify ourselves as Jungian, and that's just for better or worse. <laughs> so uh, I just have given, yeah, yeah, um, that's it is it is what it is. But so, but your question is, so what is what is Jungian, right? Right. Is it so? I mean, I should ask you that question, since you have a doctorate in psychology with a concentration in Jungian studies, just like <laughs> well, I do. We're well matched here. Um, <laughs> Jungian is. I used the word signifier a couple minutes ago. I like that. Like, I, you know, just like people make mistakes, it's very easy to collapse psychoanalytic thought into Freud's name mm -hmm. and then read Freud and say, well, there are all these, there are all these problems with it. It's, you know, it's like a hundred plus year old literature and we've moved beyond uh, some so many of these ideas and it's this way and it's, that way is problematic. And what they miss is that, well, within the psychoanalytic theoretical conversation, they know that, and it's been this really rich ongoing process of right. refining the theory, and and um, and it's the same in the quote unquote Jungian world. Mm -hmm. That Jung was a man of his time, and there are 
ways in which he was a pioneer when it came to cultural psychology and even gender theory and um, and particularly you know what Bill Parsons would call uh, from Rice University who I know you've said you is on your list of you've folks already to named talk a with. few that are in yeah my, <laughs> on um, the list. We, Bill would call it psycho spirituality but Jung the man was also you know he was a man of his time and he ex- you know expressed some anti-semitic ideas he was and frankly uh, racist ideas you know and um his theory has been you know worked through and um, brought into the 21st century so that you know there's a you can kind of separate between Jung, the human being who was who was in his era, you know, a Swiss aristocrat, behaving in certain ways that now, you know, some, some of which we 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 honor and some of which we're, you know, troubled by, and the way that Jung signifies now that this Jung, the idea of Jung, which I, frankly I think has to do with, is most powerful around. personal spiritual authority providing people an access point to a kind of introspective process that opens up meaning in life that in the previous age we would have depended on uh, you know a specific religious tradition to to provide for us, you know, Jim Hollis, who I think is also on your list to talk to. He's there. Jim, you know, Jim is very fond of talking about Dante and the 13th century. And the idea that in the 13th century, if you're in Italy or really most of Western Europe, everybody from the peasant to the, to the king saw the world in exactly the same way and understood their place in it in exactly the same way. And it was in the 13th century Catholic Christianity, the myth held the entire, um, culture together and we have nothing like that now we're where there's it's completely fragmented and we're all thrown back on our own resources to answer these fundamental questions about life that we cannot avoid which you know what what does my life mean what is my purpose what are my values and how can I act with integrity and ethically in the world when there's so many different foundations for making decisions you know um, so many different arguments that contradict each other and um, so for me I think Jung provides he's been a a, is the idea of that one can be spiritual but not religious Mm -hmm. has come into people's awareness and actually just as contemporary spirituality has been constructed over the past hundred years because you know when we talk about spirituality today, we mean something very different than they meant in the seventh century in Christianity. I mean, literally, in the in the seventh century, Christianity understood this, something that was spiritual. It meant that it was church property. <laughs> so, literally, I mean, it referred to the, the ecclesiastical holdings. Like, and now in the twenty first century, it means something very, very different and, and evolving. Spiritual is, is evolved from being a candlestick. Yeah, right, 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 yeah. Or the, you know, the horses out in the stable sure. that the, you know, the priest rides in, yeah. 
Well, I think that's one of the things that um, I, I'm, you may have this in your practice. I certainly do in mine. Uh, what do I do about it? You know, that question mm -hmm. at the end of the session, you know, what do I do? Um, what I like about your work, and for that matter, I think your work is so rich in this um, imaginal landscape, is that it helps us orient ourselves yeah. to, to what we call interpsychic or the inner world. Mm -hmm. where so much of our lives is dependent on kind of the external. And this, this work that you're doing, I think, is really um, moving forward the idea that we can look inside of ourselves uh, and, and, and relate with intrapsychic experiences in a profoundly um, sacred, religious way, yeah. I, I think. And I think what I said to you earlier is I think um, what, I'm, what I'm curious you would say about this, because this, this work that I'm doing is around the sacred and the secular. Yeah. And as I said earlier, I think that there's something about you, you and the way that you approach this, this work that uh, has reverence for um, the imagination. And I, I have to, the, I want to get into your book, but I, something that I, I'm really excited about talking about is um, your book title, the working title, am I allowed to share it? You know, oh, sure, okay? yeah. Good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, is the um, ethical imagination. So what is that? What does that mean? Ethical imagination. That's what the editors at Rutledge want to know. <laughs> my one, my... Well, good news. That's certainly a hook. You know, if everybody's going, well, what the hell is that? I want to talk about it. <laughs> no, that was, it's just funny that that was the one piece of feedback they had. They're like, hey, you know, we're going to add a subtitle to that. So <laughs> we need some, we need to be thinking of a subtitle for that. Um, the, I, I understood when I wrote it to it to mean a couple of different things. One is um, that the the imagination is inherently ethical, and I use that word in a, a a fairly narrow way that I don't think we're used to talking about ethics. By by that I mean it's fundamentally relational and 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 interested in the nature of relationships and there's i can i'll elaborate a little bit on that in a minute maybe um but the second way i mean it is that the imagination is the the wellspring of of ethics and i would also make a distinction between ethics which we're used to talking about we're used to thinking about as a bunch of rules yeah, right yeah and the ethical which is more of an orientation or an attitude. And uh, the Jungian analyst Esther Solomon uh, talks eloquently about the ethical attitude, and she talks about it in a slightly different way than I mean, but that it's not... We, we live in an era where rules are not going to allow us to... That we can't create a set of rules that are going to account for every human behavior in every situation, or it's going to account for the competing... Um, philosophical or you know scientific um, cultural religious you know arguments mm -hmm. that are to be made on any given issue so it's more about understanding that we imagine our ethics we imagine our ethical um, attitude or orientation whether we're aware of it or not and so we have some we have some agency, right, to make decisions about that. The, the book itself came out of 
and it, this is for my dissertation, right? So it was my it was my doctoral dissertation, and I'm just kind of adapting it. Uh, the the idea for me was pretty simple, uh, and it went back to uh, when I was first in analysis. I told about the analyst in my twenties mm-hmm. who used this word fantasy. So I at the time I was in my, so my mid twenties. I was in a relationship with with someone. I was having fantasies about somebody else, and I was filled with catholic guilt about <laughs> about that and i and i said to my analyst i was like well you know isn't there an ethics of the imagination like i i feel guilty about these fantasies and and he just he said i don't know what you're talking about he said fantasy is fantasy and reality is reality and that stuck with me i mean i think what he was trying to do I, this is my ch- maybe charitable way of thinking about it, but I, I think it's probably true. He was trying to shake me out of scrupulosity. He was trying to shake me out of, come on, give, give it a, Fitzpatrick, give it a break. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. it's, it's okay, <laughs> you know. Uh, but I, but the way he framed it always troubled me. I was like, no, fantasy and reality are related in, in complex and inter- interdependent ways. You know, uh, there's a Jungian analyst named Ron Shank. He's an author uh, and scholar. And he put it to me really well uh, at one night over dinner early in my work on the project. He said, you know, look, you and I are sitting here eating enchiladas and drinking a beer. And you have a fantasy about what's happening. And I have a fantasy about what's happening between us. And we have these fantasies at the same time that whatever is happening between us is happening between us, you know. And... It that really opened me up to realize, yeah, we're imagining our experience all the time, right? And the f- way I'm imagining my experience always affects how the experience that I'm having. It always affects the relationships I have. And I know you interviewed Jeff, uh, Jeff Kripal, mm-hmm. and when I talked to him about the project early on, he's like, "Well, the last thing I would want," he's like, "I'm kind of against this." He's like, "The last thing I would want is for for there to be a big." big brother of the imagination. You I'm know? so glad you got to that because I underlined it. Yeah, it's to... in my book. Yeah, it's, a, yeah, it's in the, I, I, I use it in the, in yeah. the dissertation. That's not what I'm trying to to go for here. We're not, we're not looking for, um, we're not looking for ways to feel guilty about what we imagine. It's about taking seriously, the taking the imagination very seriously and understanding that, you know, and and this is an unsubtle example, but it's the one that always pops up for me. Well, you know, my, my son and my wife and I went to uh, the National Holocaust Museum this summer and walked through, it's an amazing place, and walked through the um, exhibit of, I think it was Dachau. They had a mock-up of how people would enter and... Um, enter and what they would be told and then how they would um, be led to the gas chambers and then they would die. It was a really eloquent um, sculptural piece that they had. It was huge. And I was struck again seeing it about somebody imagined this, you know? This lived in the imaginations not only of the people we talk about, the Hitlers and the, you know, the, 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 the Nazi um, leaders, but in the imagination of architects and engineers and um, the people who were building it to the extent they knew what they were building. And that 
it lived in, it, it existed in our imaginations, and then it came into a physical existence. And this is, you know, this happens all the time, you know. So there is a relationship between how we imagine and how we act in the world. It's funny, I heard at UTMB, there was a, um, uh, on the radio last night, on a local station, UTMB, the medical, um, you know, medical center, they now have 3D printing. So they have this workspace with a 3D printer there where physicians can come in and immediately put form to the, what they imagine. So not only can they say, like, uh. there's a woman who does something with um, inmates. She was needing to have some kind of an object, but the way that it was typically made was too strong, and so it could be turned into some kind of a weapon, but she made some kind of flimsy uh, object in this immediately. Yeah. And the thing that stands out the most about what they said is that you know, we're cutting out the middleman. You know, you used to have to go to these big organizations and spend $15,000 for uh, this prototype. Yeah. Now... A physician can have this idea or even use a CT scan, for example. Some yeah. issue with the skull, you can take a CT scan and make up an exact replica of some kind of defect uh, in the, due to an um, open head injury. Yeah. Uh, and they can fit to, to, to help the skull, um, I mean, perfectly fit. So it really gives wow. a lot of um, <laughs> this intersection. I know you're going to get into technology, but yeah. it, I think it may be from a different lens. But um, it, 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 it's fascinating to pay attention to what what in the imagination, how something can kind of come out and and become kind of what we call reality. It's so quickly now, and we have so much power. Um, and yeah, there are immense ethical questions that are attached to that, you know? I really um, want to get into impulsivity and uh, in our political landscape, but, uh, <laughs> you know, if, you know, in, in imagination out mouth, you know, to yeah. millions of people has, we're seeing very real consequences. Yeah, that's so true. That's and so, so your, true. your idea of ethic, I want to plant the seed cause I want you to continue going if you need to, but I, I, or if you, if it's flowing, but, um, the story of the, the cop that you, um, looked oh, at sure. on this, on this subject around yeah. kind of the, because I think, I think what helps people, um, what I notice in classes that I teach is really when we kind of joke and say, hey, let's put some, you know, skin on that bone. Yeah. You know? let's, so, so could you provide that example? As, uh, please. Yeah. So this story fascinated me when I was, um, the dissertation was over, I think. I'd finished writing it. And I'll include, I don't know if it'll be a chapter, just part of a chapter on this story, but uh, there's a case in New York City of a police officer who was arrested and tried for attempting to kidnap, cook, and eat, a kill, of course, kidnap, kill, cook, and eat, uh, a woman or women, and one of whom was his wife, um, and he. What was interesting? There are many things that are interesting about it, and I'll just say that generally speaking, it gets right at the complexity of the imagination in um, 
the 21st century and the digital quote quote unquote digital age right when the age of the internet so what what happened was there's a wonderful hbo documentary about this i'm forgetting the name of it but it's pretty easy to find the police officer's name was gilberto valle v-a-l-l-e and in the tabloid press he was called the cannibal cop right it's the cannibal cop well what he was doing was he was in these online forums and he they were um I'm forgetting, it was called FetLife, or I forget, it's a made fetish sort of forum that he was on. I think it's called FetLife. In any case, um, and he was posting about his desire to, you know, kill and eat women. And he would post about it in some pretty, you know, um, revolting detail. And there were other people who were engaged in this with him. And his wife discovered his posting. They had one child, I think, at the, I think they just have one child. And she was horrified and she contacted the FBI and they began to investigate him. So his argument was that he, this was fantasy, right? I mean, it wasn't, he didn't do anything. And in fact, no women were ever kidnapped. Um, the court's case hinged on a couple of things that he did do. One of them was to purchase, I think, some rope. Uh, he made some scouting expeditions that he then bragged about on in, in the forums about how he, he, he took his wife and his daughter to see this old high school friend. And uh, it was a woman. And they had a wonderful visit. The wife's, you know, his wife said, oh, it was just a wonderful visit. It was very friendly. The woman herself said she just really enjoyed catching up with him. And they came back and then he got online and immediately started writing about, okay, well, I've scouted it out and I know, you know, you know I know where she lives and this is how I'm going to kidnap her. And these other guys uh, online were going to receive her. He wasn't going to kill her himself or eat her himself. He was going to throw her in, a, in his trunk and then deliver her to, to these guys spelled it out in a lot of detail and then the day of the day comes when it's supposed to happen and it passes and she isn't kidnapped and nobody talks about it like online there's no angry messaging back and forth about where were you and it didn't get fall through so um so it raises these questions. He also he also accessed a police database to look up information on the on the, some of the women he was looking at, which was illegal. But at no point did he actually make an attempt, you know. And so what happened in the in the case was fascinating. He in the courtroom, which is that the jury found him guilty, and the judge set aside the verdict and said, "I'm sorry, the, the this is." the case hasn't been made uh, this is not this yeah this is not a crime you know we can have a moral and do have moral reaction to it but it's not a it's not a crime so it got to raise so many questions first of all who are you online you know who are you engaged in a specific kind of imaginal activity where you engage other people who are in this in a similar but different discrete kind of imaginal activity because the other two guys were convicted uh, separately because they took took um, took it further we'll say um, for the moment and 
from his perspective, you know, he his wife left him, of course, and and um, he had to go through the trial and then a and then an appeal by the prosecutors to try and um, get the verdict reinstated. And then that I believe that that believe where it stands right now is that that attempt failed as well. So Valle is a free man. Uh, the docu- again, the documentary is fascinating because wow. he, yeah. he's um, he's a fairly soft-spoken guy and little, kind of a little puzzled by the, you know, how this happened to him and feels, you know, somewhat victimized about it. He's like, oh, you know, this was just the imagination. This is just fantasy. But terrifying for his wife, terrifying to the women who were object, real women who were objects of his fantasy. And um, the real tangible effects in the in the world so you know online the online spaces are fascinating because there's a kind of anonymity to them and we can be we can imagine ourselves into ways of being that actually and relate to other people through them who we've never met you know Uh, and we we are simultaneously having a fantasy and also acting in the real world and and I, i'm sure you see it in your office but in mine there's so much about when people are relating to what others are putting out there they're presenting yeah. and it's i've seen research on this contributing to anxiety and depression and oh yeah so many issues about what you know there's such a gap you know uh, between who somebody is and how they present to be uh, ostensibly in that landscape yeah. and of course all we see is the presentation piece yeah and yeah. then of course people have a fantasy about this comparative analysis almost about what everybody else is doing and how they are and then yeah. what my life is like and it really there's a lot of hurt uh, yeah there's a tremendous this. amount of suffering about it and mm-hmm. i think on both sides i think on the part of the exploiter and the exploited right you know and the person i mean i think about it and not, not always in those terms obviously you know, we we have this fantasy, right, of consenting adults, you know, engaging online with in, in activities, and you and it's not just online. I mean, this is an old story, right? Of course, there have always been people who have misrepresented themselves or have represented themselves one way and and had other kinds of intentions and uh, allowed the people that they're engaging with to make make the assumptions that they that they want them to make and then take advantage of them right is this in the or what do you say about the idea of the persona around this is this what we're getting into right so persona from a the way that jung uses this idea of the persona is persona is very simply the adaptation that we make to the world that it's the face that we show the world it's the and 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 it happens unconsciously over the course of our life you know we're our persona is what allows us to navigate what is our actual inner experience and what the needs of the environment are right so what people expect of us so we create this face right persona literally means um face or mask Mask, it means mask doesn't it so it's the it's the mask that we wear we engage the public to to wander you know to make our way in the world in a hopefully a safe way or one that ensures our survival but isn't necessarily related directly to who we are, how we experience ourselves to be, there are a lot of aspects of who we are that are not acceptable to show the world for a variety of reasons. And when you're online, people are explicitly creating, you know, personas and engaging in it in a consciousness, in a conscious way 
I mean, I use the word conscious somewhat advisedly, but they're engaging it in a in a way that involves some real thought about, you know, from you know, fantasy role playing games that are mainstream. I'm a little out of date with this stuff, but things like World of Warcraft and, uh, you know, where people create create characters because that is actually how they would want to understand themselves or it allows them allows them to identify highlight aspects of who they are that are um, affirming or rewarding or so on and so forth they get to go be something that they feel themselves to be but don't necessarily get to experience in their everyday life or their life offline right? it, it sounds to me like that is a in line or you know in the same substance that um we experience early on in romantic relationships or any relationship, oh, but romantic yeah. relationships. Yeah. Um, cause I think that, that, that helps, at least that helps me understand this idea a, a great deal, um, around this orientation that our culture has to romance and to, um, uh, feeling loved, being loved, loving, being needed, being wanted yeah. and how important that is, um, to people. Yes. So, so that, but but what you're it's a it's a similar and and different way of looking at that around the online component because you really have a great deal more autonomy to experiment with that persona. Yeah. If you don't if you don't if there isn't physical proximity, you know, if you aren't living in a community that um, gives you I was going to say keep you accountable, but it's not accountability isn't quite the right word. It's more gives you a constant feedback loop about, you know, about your your behavior, how you're how you're engaging, how you're seen. And if you're not, you know, if if you are right, I was listening on the way into a wonderful podcast, Radio Lab, and they were talking about the trolley problem and this famous philosophical problem where if you uh, if you see there's a train coming down the tracks and there are five workers working on the tracks and their backs are to the train and you, you're yelling at them. They can't hear you. And, uh, you are next to a lever that if you push the lever, it will send the train off onto a sidetrack where one worker is. And, uh, and so what, what do you do? You know, do you choose to kill the one person to save the five person? Do you, or do you be, commit murder? And it's then made a little bit more complex when they, they ask it somewhat differently and they say, well, let's say there's not a lever. Let's say that there is a, uh, there's a person standing on the platform that is very large. And if you push that person off the platform in front of the train, that will stop the train or slow it down enough so that the, the, the five guys down the track will, will be able to jump out of the way. And, um, you know, if there's a lever to press, people by and large, we'll press the lever. We'll say, okay, well, I would do that. But if there's a person right there that you have to actually push, they wouldn't do that. They would let the five people die. Um, or another way of saying it, that is they wouldn't commit murder. But it's about physical proximity, right? You know, so in the digital world, it's the lever thing. <laughs> you know, you can push a lever and it's going to it's going to hurt somebody, but I'm not, I'm not actually hurting that person. I'm just pushing a lever and they're responsible for being out there. But it gets much more personal when it's somebody in your life and it gets much harder to, to, to inflict harm. Those, those wonderfully <laughs> difficult binds, you know, do you rob the store to get the medicine to save your wife? Yeah. And do you, 
you know, I've actually run um, groups with kids on that and watched kind of how their dilemmas play out and, you know, what stages of development they're actually able to say, yes, yeah. I would do this or no, I would do that. Or they would recognize the complexity and not have an immediate reaction that says, oh, of course I would, you know, do that and right. kind of sit and yeah. struggle with it. So it, it, this gets to something. Did you have something? Well, I was there? just going to jump on the struggle. Yeah. The importance oh, go. Of, yeah, go. Yeah, the importance of, and uh, which is, again, it gets back around to this, the current cultural moment we're in, which is, you know, we're in this postmodern moment where there's no, all the big overarching narratives that tell us what is right and what is wrong. And we, you know, those are gone. You know, we have laws uh, that police our behavior, but they're not the same as having an ethical uh, foundation. We just don't, we don't have ethical foundations at these big, you know, resources to rely on authorities to rely on so we're thrown back on our own resources and the and when we do that it involves having to hold these really complex questions and understand that there's not a right answer right there are uh, actions that have consequences for the choices that have consequences and not choosing is also a choice right and so we have to bear the burden of our acting in the world and bear the guilt that comes inevitably mm. with any action that we take. We have to understand that, you know, we can intend no harm and understand that harm is inevitably going to occur, you know, and that's part of just being a human being now. Um, and we lack ways of, I think well, that's one thing that is psychotherapy provides imperfectly in this moment but it is the social function that it serves, which is kind of the role that confession would have served in a Catholic tradition or the ways many other religions have had rituals of expiating guilt, right? Releasing yourself from the burden of seeking forgiveness, seeking, you know, absolution, um, seeking release of the, that suffering. And we just don't have, we don't have good mechanisms for it. So mm -hmm. the choices are, the choices are terribly bleak. It's like, well, we'll avoid it. Either avoid the choice or we'll avoid the guilt. We'll numb it. We'll, you know, we use substances or we'll, you know, or we'll, uh, you know, lash ourselves to a, um, a fundamentalism or a, a, a leader that will tell us what is right and what is wrong so that we just don't have to think about it uh, rather than holding on to that really difficult and necessary task of, taking responsibility and looking within oneself, reflecting and not simply acting in a way that might be satisfying in the moment, but taking the time to really reflect on what my, what my choice is going to be and how I'm going to carry that. Wow. Yeah. I, I immediately think about how our relationships to feelings, um, I see is so, Yeah, essentially we're angry about feeling scared. We're scared about feeling angry. We're anxious about feeling depressed. We're angry about feeling depressed. We're anxious about our anger yeah, and, our, right. and yeah. rather than yeah. be in those various spaces and feel the, feel whatever's up for us, yeah. we do, we flee and we, we seek answers in the how to's and the what to do next. And I'm, you know, hand up, you know, I'm John, right. I do that, you know, yeah. Um, it gets it gets to this um, 
do you, do you mind if I jump no, into please. something real quick? Because yeah. I I, I want to get the thing that keeps coming up for me is of course the the idea the idea of romantic relationships because they are in our culture of of such profound importance. Mm-hmm. Um, you say at the beginning um, that your quote here. I'm sure you use this. I think you used it. It, it was your first quote in your dissertation. It's your first quote here in the proposal. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Matthew five twenty eight. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Because I'm I'm interested to find out. You know, there's a lot. That's a pretty loaded line there. Right. Uh, right. And and I, I, I yeah just well so uh, yeah I'm I'm happy to talk about it. It's certainly one. I mean I we talked a little bit earlier about what started me on this process and it had to do with fantasies of women, right? <laughs> so uh, of other women. And adulterous fantasies, as it were, and you know, so it's preoccupied me. The there's a story about it in popular culture, which, depending on how old you know you are, you may or may not be aware of. Which is that Jimmy Carter, when he was running for president in 1976, he gets interviewed by Playboy magazine, of all things. And uh, can you like can you imagine <laughs> what a setup? Could you imagine Barack Obama <laughs> sitting for an right. interview yeah. in 2008 oh with Playboy magazine? And it, I think it was published in November. I don't remember if it came out just before the election or just after. But um, I read it for the yeah for the articles, articles. <laughs> for the interviews with <laughs> the interviews with world leaders. Oh, um, so say. he like he he raises that mm-hmm. is he raises that quote and he says, well, listen, I have felt lust in my heart. I'm, I'm paraphrasing felt lust in my heart for other, for women other than my wife. And, um, somebody, I think it was time magazine or something called it one of the most uncomfortable moments for America, you wow. know, ever, because why do we need to know about the president's lust for, <laughs> for other women? But Jimmy Carter, he, he made a, if you read the whole article and I have actually read the article <laughs> in Playboy, he makes, a, uh, I think, a very important point, which is he says, you know what, Jesus here is not talking about, again, I'm paraphrasing, is Christ is not saying you shouldn't imagine, right? You shouldn't have the fantasy. What he's, It's about pride. It's about the people who aren't sleeping around, who are looking at the guy who did sleep around and saying, I'm better than you. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, everybody, you can't, you know, you can't help but, have these everybody's having those fantasies so you stop judging it's about right. let it let go of the judgment and uh which i think was an important message and it, it but also i imagine implicit in in jimmy carter's famously a southern baptist you know his experience was of feeling guilt about those experiences um and Playboy, why, you know, is, would evoke those. Being interviewed by Playboy <laughs> would evoke that form, I'm sure. Um, and it's not to say, I mean, yeah, I, it's not, he, he, I can't speak for Jimmy Carter. Um, I shouldn't speak for Jimmy Carter. For me, you know, that passage does does get interpreted not just for me but i mean i think the traditional ways of interpreting that passage so exegetical texts right the people biblical commentators from within christianity interpret it in the in the other the opposite way they say this is about not this is about policing your imagination and i don't i don't hear that 
yeah at all i think there's a there's another very important way of of handling that but it gets to this the fundamental question that i have which is meant which i pose you know in the in in the book and is meant to be an unanswerable question which is do do we have fantasies or do they have us and the question is both or the answer is both you know there's an aspect of our of our imaginal life that is not within our control like fantasies bubble up you know we we i think people have that experience certainly you know what dream life is pretty easy for us to understand like we don't have any control over our dreams and there's a there's a, a sort of a, a line within uh christian uh theological commentary over the years where where people say you know thank god i i don't have any responsibility i think it's uh, augustine actually says that says something akin to that it's like i well i'm so glad i don't have responsibility for my dreams you know that's that's because um so there's that you know we're we're, we're forgiven that conscious experiences or waking experiences of fantasy are more complex you know because we can find ourselves drawn back to pleasurable fantasies again and again and again and question is well what why am i being drawn back to that and am i drawing, being drawn back to that as a way of avoiding an experience that i need to have or am i being drawn back to it because it's compensating for something else that's going on that is out of balance in my life and particularly when we get to fantasy experiences that are morally charged in one way so if we get back to the idea of adultery that if you're having a fantasy about another partner or another well it's it's an important question to ask yourself. It's like, okay, well, what does this mean, right? Like, what does it mean in the context of a, a partnered relationship that I would be starting to have these fantasies? I think, you know, my, my immediate thought, though, is people typically want to answer that with some kind of morality. Uh-huh. They immediately yeah. go into, it's, it, what does it mean? Well, it means I'm flawed, or it means I'm, the relationship's bad, or it means right. I am... Uh, you know, a sex crazed, whatever, and versus the the work that I think we're talking about here, which is actually holding that. And the, uh, the question of meaning is not uh, what, I, what I would say to that. And I'm curious what you would say. The question of meaning is not one that produces an easy answer. Right. Yeah. You know, so what does it mean? It's not, there you go. There's the answer. Yeah. It's, you know, what are you, what are you struggling with? Yeah. And what do you wrestle with? What are you wrestling with here? Um, and it's interesting that we, because I was thinking of the same words and then arguing with myself about it, uh, struggle, wrestle, suffer. Yeah. You know, I'm suffering these fantasies. I'm suffering. Well, I'm having them. And I'm, but then I'm maybe suffering or struggling or wrestling with the implications of them. Right? Great. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, or how I'm, how I'm thinking about them, how I'm interpreting them so there we get into a pretty complex understanding because you have both the fantasy then you have the kind of intrapsychic interpreter and there there something opens up there i think about you know who who is the interpreter yeah what is that interpretation in service to yeah and are there other interpretations that don't come so easily that may be resting in the background i think sometimes those interpretations that come so quickly tend to be patterns based upon our um, on our histories yeah. right yeah. you know that interpretation that immediately judges it and says that it's wrong is right. 
is a, a one voice of many and one that's probably pretty powerful that has come up through our development and you know to experiences with our parents and religious yeah. leaders and you know teachers and who, whoever so you have to have a critical attitude toward those as well and by critical i don't mean say it's wrong i mean critical in that you're you're looking at it and analytical is probably a better word is you're trying to understand what, what are the many different kinds of responses i can have and that takes time and it takes effort again it gets back around to you know that there's a the widespread, not widespread, I would say, but there's a crit- line of critique about psychotherapeutic culture. Um, there's a famous book by Christopher Lash called The Culture of Narcissism. I'm glad you're getting here. Yeah. 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 Um, the, uh, I forget when he was writing in the 80s, I think. And where it really critiques psychotherapeutic culture as this, you know, interior, this taking of energy away from the social sphere and turning um making engaging this gross act of selfishness and actually i mean i'm sure that there are people for whom that's true but what is it's also can be understood and i think often is experienced certainly in my work with clients i see this all the time as this is the hardest um i don't want to overuse the word ethical but it's hardest sort of personal work in relationship to other people about how I'm going to, I'm going to relate to other people with integrity, uh, given how I'm giving my experience and the complexity of my desires that, you know, it's actually what is not psychotherapy is not necessarily what is needed, but some way to examine one's own experience, some thoughtful, rigorous um, way to examine one's own experience uh, so that one has, uh, one can move in the world and act without, with the least amount of damage, with the most amount of, you know, uh, of uh, hope for growth, not just for yourself, but for other people, you know. So, um, consciously, yeah. And I, maybe that's, we've, you know, pulled the jeopardy and given the answer first here, but is that, is that the definition of living consciously? Yeah, wow. Um, sure, I mean, it sounds like, sounds like one definition. And there's a sense in which, again, one of the reasons that I have been drawn to the Jungian tradition or the Jungian sort of yeah, the world is that Jung understood the ego, that sense of I, to be very small in the whole of the psyche, right? The whole human being, that consciousness is something that is has very little turf, <laughs> that the whole of who I, who I am is much, much, um, much, much larger. And what that means is that most of who we are is unconscious. Most of who we are is inaccessible. Uh, to our awareness and in a in a superficial way at least neuroscience agrees with this neuroscience would never use the words conscious and unconscious but they they do say very clearly that the vast 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 majority of um, the processes that go into moving through the world are beyond the level of our awareness they're all happening outside of our awareness without using the word unconscious 
Um, but w- within depth psychology, it's like, you know what? I, if I'm going to live consciously, there's no goal. There's no place I'm going to land where I've gotten rid of all my unconsciousness. <laughs> you know, the best I can do is live in relationship with it. You know, try to, re- to pay attention to what comes up to me in dreams and in habitual ways of interacting with other people that may be problematic or, you know, um, I feel like as we've been talking, like, I feel like I've spent, cause we'd use the word ethics. Like, I feel like I've spent so much time here just this morning talking in, um, not exactly negative terms, but pretty morally heavy, you know, this is a moral obligation that we have. And I, I think that comes about because of, people like Christopher Lash or writers who say that psychotherapeutic, psychologically informed spirituality or psychospirituality or the contemporary spiritualities, the new spiritualities, the idea of this being spiritual but not religious, that this isn't grounded in a moral foundation, that this is narcissistic and it's not uh, related to the world and it takes energy away from social change that is necessary. And I, I see it as it can be an, a, a real moral discipline, you know, a real spiritual discipline. And, and I'm sensitive to the word discipline has kind of negative connotations for us too, but discipline and, you know, the root of that has to do with learning, right? We're, we're learning from ourselves on an ongoing basis about the complexity of, of acting in the world and living in integrity with other people. And, um, that requires reflection, <laughs> you know, um, it, it, it does. And, and I think that contemporary spiritualities need room and time to emerge. And as they do emerge, we'll see more sophisticated kinds of social engagements that emerge with them, um, ways of imagining changing the world and, that don't simply that aren't simply reactions that come from a, a place of reflection that that does have real integrity I just as, as a, a reflection on what you were saying I don't know how anybody listening is going to experience this but my experience in listening to you is is um, is o- opening in what you're talking about I'm having an, an opening experience because the idea of taking seriously and with a particular attitude, those um, kind of what we call interior experiences, I I think that opens us up into uh, another, to use a loaded term, dimension. I think we all intuit that we keep reaching outside and we keep re-experiencing the same patterns and letdowns. And, um, you know, there's there's a same, there's a... there's a sameness sometimes with our outside world. Yeah. And it, it, the, the great paradox is that we continue to orient ourselves outside, but as soon as we, we begin to do that, things, uh, be, as soon as we begin to look inside, things kind of open up. Yes, yes. And, I, and I, that's, yeah. that's my experience. I didn't yes. get the kind of morality, the heaviness. I, I, I feel like a, a sense of, wow, like I can, I can take this and... St- st- continue to stay in this energy and um, that, that I think there's an opening for profound change in any of our lives when we begin to recognize that it is not just imagination or just fantasy life or only those kinds of 
random firings of the brain late at night or, you know, weird images that come to us as we're sitting here talking that we're both doing simultaneously, even as we're attending to each other and looking at each other's eyes and, and also having another kind of experience all the while. Well, I'm glad that that's how you experience it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I, and when I think about it clinically, uh, when I think about working with people, you know, as a therapist, that is so often it's about having the issue is that one's imagination is so constricted yeah that you have to allow yourself to imagine things that you understand as being um that, that based on your old life on your history are are wrong right uh you and it's not because they are wrong it's been because they're experiences that were terrifying to your parents that you would have because they were terrified by them um, or that it, it is counter to a cultural narrative about what it means to be, for instance, what it means to be a, uh, um, a parent, what it means to be a husband, what it means to be um, as a citizen of the world, you know, that you have certain, so often it's, it's, not, it's not about making it so that all is allowed it's more, let's take a look at the assumptions that have gone into the unconscious assumptions that have gone on to getting us into this situation, right? And open up the imaginal possibilities. It, 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 your word opening really does resonate for me. It's like, well, when you said, and we'll um, start closing, but when, yeah. when um, early on in our friendship and our experience together in our graduate work, um, we were talking about dreams, and you said... Uh, you know, I, I think of dreams sometimes as a lover, you know, that when you attend to this lover, it, there's a, a, f- a feedback, a reciprocity, yeah. you know, that sh- she or he attends to you. Yeah. And I, that's, that's, I think for, for me, that's how I'm, you know, in thinking about the sacred and the profane or the sacred and the secular, you know, the kind of within the church or within the holy space, um, and, and without uh, that kind of line, we, we have that in, in our interior life also. So when we pay attention to these things, something becomes um, connected with an other. Because I, mm-hmm. in quotations, I am not creating those fantasy thoughts. I am not, um, you know, uh, the, the part of I that I think of when I think of I has not assembled those things together. It's coming yeah. from somewhere else. Yes. Which I love what you said about um, dreams versus waking state, where the dreams, it's kind of easy to understand. I didn't do that. Yeah. But when we're awake, we really struggle with, oh, my God, what, you know, what does this mean? Right. And I, I, I think that helped me a lot when we were talking about attending to dreams in that way. And I've seen it with clients all the time. Right. Put a journal by your bed put some intentionality there, write down your dream and she or he will, you know, to personify it, uh, mm-hmm. it will relate back. Yes. So, yeah. and, and I, th- that to me brings up the idea of other. Yeah. Inside the yes. inner other. Um, so a- any other thoughts in closing that you have kind of swirling around? So many, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, it happens at the moment that I've been, because of um, sort of my own 
internal processes and the way they they have matched up with what's going on out in the world. I've just been paying a lot more attention to uh, articulating how you know articulating how well I guess you know really Socrates puts it puts it best. He says the unexamined life is not worth living. And the and and then the oracle at Delphi too, right? The oracle at Delphi says, "Know thyself." Um, and knowing that's a that's like a um, increasingly important in this moment, right? To to know yourself, it's not less important it's not narcissistic it's not taking energy away from the world it's trying to figure out how best to act in the world and to do it with um care you know and most important care for yourself <laughs> you know first you know uh it's a way of yeah know, knowing yourself as a gift and a privilege and and in, 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 we can even say maybe even a privilege in a in the way the privilege is being used today which is that it's something that maybe maybe people with resources are able to engage in and people without resources maybe are not able to engage in so in that way that we have psychological resources that well that's yeah no that's a good yeah that's a good point maybe even with material resources you know but particularly for people of privilege people particularly and i am straight white male american i am privileged 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 that there is even more onus on us to be aware you know, to be paying attention um, to our assumptions and to the and to your idea of the other, to the other within that is talking to us. You know that there is a greater, um, um, greater isn't quite the right word. There is an other. There's more to us that is speaking to us at all, at all times, and we just have to listen. And we need that voice right now more than ever. We need those those other voices within us um, to be able to. Yeah, to act with integrity. So. Wow, thank you. Dude. Um, my thought, you know, when I teach a class, I always say, hey guys, um, you may learn something. I definitely have. So for, I'm, I'm of course certain that anybody listening will learn something hearing you speak, but I definitely have. So really thank you for the opportunity to talk. Such an honor and always a profound pleasure. Thank you with you. Thank you, you too. Thanks, Sean. Love